you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. While you're turning there, just a review of some of the things we've seen over the course of the last few weeks. Two weeks ago, we saw that when you love, you want to give. The Lord has given to us because He loves us. He's lavished His grace upon us. And when we love the Lord in response to His love for us, we want to give back to Him. Not just of our material blessings, that's certainly part of it, but all of who we are. Paul states it very simply in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. When you love, you want to give. Last week we saw that when you love, you want to protect. And that's certainly what the Lord did for his people. While he was in the process of of growing Israel up, spiritual infants, while they were learning more and more about God and who he is and his love for them and provision for them as they live a life of obedience before them, God was determined to protect them. And so when people from different sectors of their lives, from religious sector, from the family sector, from the political and social sector, when people will arise out of those groups and try to turn the people away from God, when they arise among them with lies, saying life and health and peace is found here in this other God, then Yahweh, the one and only true and living God, will protect his people. He calls for the death of of the person or the people who seek to bring death to the entire nation. Because it's neither God's love nor his justice in this instant to allow the one to live and cause the death of many. What is God's justice? To allow the one to die to provide life for many. And you and I gather here this morning and we are both right now and eternally grateful for that kind of justice dramatically acted out on the cross. Caiaphas, though a high priest, was certainly no friend of Jesus and no friend of God. And when he stood before the religious leaders who were gathered to consider the question, what were we going to do with Jesus? Now he's gone and he raised a man from the dead, Lazarus. What were we going to do with him? Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Jesus, one man, died so that many, many might live. Clearly, God loves his people. He acts to protect his people, to provide life for them, and to protect the life he gives to them. So, when you love, you want to give. When you love, you want to protect. This morning, we're going to see that when you love, you want to prove. So if you have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 13, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together this morning from the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you 
and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. And if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, then you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you once again for your word. Once again, we ask you to be faithful to your promise as you always are to bless the reading and the hearing of your word. And we call on you now, O Spirit of God, to teach us a truth from your word this morning. Uh, bless us with the transformation that you desire in our hearts, the transformation that will be for our good and for your glory. So we commit ourselves to you uh, and to the authority of your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Again, we see that these verses that we've just read describe potential events that may occur when God's people have settled into their homes in the promised land. And when they are there experiencing that blessed and that abundant life that comes from living a life of obedience before the Lord. At that time, there may be a prophet or one who foretells by dreams who may appear before the people and say to them, let's follow other gods. Let's worship other gods. Well, both of these positions, both that of prophet and dreamer, if you want to call them that, they are ordained by God for the health of his people. If we go back to Numbers chapter 12, back to the early days of the people of Israel, just months after they have been rescued from the slavery of Egypt, God says to them, in, in Numbers chapter 12, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. And so we see that this is God's ordained method, whereby he communicates with his people through prophets and through the visions and dreams that he gives to these prophets. And so in the future, when a prophet stands among the people of Israel, as surely they will, and say, I have had a vision, and if that vision pertains to something that's going to happen in the future, the people of Israel won't think anything unusual of that at all. As a matter of fact, they will welcome it. They'll probably be very excited to hear what the prophet has to say to them. Because in fact, we know that great discouragement, great hopelessness, came to these people later in their history when they didn't hear from God. 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, no prophet, no word from heaven. There was hopelessness. Silence is always usually disconcerting, even to us, because we don't know how to interpret silence. You know, we try to think the best, but our fears and our doubts drive us to conclude the worst. Well... I haven't heard a word since my interview. I guess I didn't get the job. It's been 12 hours since our first date. He, she hasn't called, texted, Snapchatted, <laughs> tweeted, Facebooked, emailed. Did, did I get them all? <laughs> it's all over. 
They never want to see me again. We don't know how to interpret silence. And so a word from a prophet, a vision, would surely be a welcome sign among the people that God is speaking to them, especially if that word is accompanied by a miraculous sign. But God's people have to be able to discern what truly is a message from God. Let us follow other gods, the prophet says. Now, how would that be a message from God? Let's look at what happens next in this passage. When we wonder why God would allow a man like this, a prophet, to appear among his people, tempting them, seducing them to turn away from God, we get this answer. It's in the middle of verse 3. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's all a test. Are you kidding me? Does this strike you as something good or something bad? Does this seem to you a, a kindness from God? Or is it instead cruel? After all, this prophet produces many convincing proofs, a predicted sign that comes to pass, some sort of miracle. What kind of trickery is this? Why would God put his people to such a test? Remember what we saw last week? The Hebrew word that we translate turn away, which was the the goal of all these people to get people to turn away from God. It literally means to seduce, to seduce people away from God. Well, because God is for us, he wants us to be faithful to our covenant relationship with him, to remain faithful to our vows, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Stay close to the Lord. And so that's why he tests his people. He forces us to do what we might otherwise not do on our own. He tests us to see what is in us. What is in your heart? For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. In sickness and in health. What's there? Do you really love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Or do you only say that you love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul? See, a test will prove which one of those is true. And what a blessing to be forced to look in here and see what's there and what may be missing that is good and necessary for us. We all have blind spots, things that we don't see about ourselves that other people see clearly. As I've asked you before, is my sin as obvious to you as your sin is to me. Certain things in life help us know what's in here, like marriage. It provides multiple opportunities to say, I I, I never knew that about myself. Thank you, dear, for pointing that out. See, a, a test is a blessing. Everything gets tested. Drugs, before they're put on the market, they're tested extensively. New cars, new technology, through prototypes to make sure they're able to do what they're supposed to do before they're put on the market. Testing demonstrates what something's made of. Testing gives confidence. I know this drug will help in this sickness. It's been tested. I know that the braking system on this car will work in this climate because it's been tested. And so, too, the Lord tests his people to see what they're made of so that we know what we can handle, so that we know what we are equipped to do. And if the testing reveals 
a deficit, what a blessing. Because we can cry out to the Lord and ask him to fill up in us what is not already there. Whenever the word test or tempt is used of God, as it is in these verses, it never means to lay snares of deceit or to entrap the unwary. It only always means to prove or to examine. And so God tests our hearts. Not so he can find out what is in your heart or what is in my heart. He isn't seeking to discover something he doesn't already know. God knows what's there. Matthew 9, 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus knew. He saw what no one else could see. He could see into the hearts of men. 1 Corinthians 2, 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is act. He knows what's in our hearts. Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He searches our hearts. He searches our minds. God already knows what's there. God tests us so that you and I know what is right here. It's for our benefit that God provides opportunities to see what's in our heart, to see what comes out when we are tested. God tested Abraham. Do you remember that story? Ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son. God ultimately did not allow that to happen, but Abraham was willing to do it. And after the moment of testing was over, Abraham knew that Abraham had faith. It was tested. It was proven. His son Isaac knew that his father Abraham had faith. It was tested. It was proven. And it was, it's faith that pleases God. Real faith. Not lip service faith. Real faith is what was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And for thousands and thousands of years, people, people like you and me, have been able to to look back at Abraham, who's called the father of faith, and to know what true faith is. Trusting God, that God will do the right thing, that God will provide. That's faith. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. And there he was tested as well. And what came out of the heart of Jesus at every test? Truth. Every response to every test, the truth of God came pouring out of Jesus. It is written, man does not live by bread alone. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When Jesus was tested, truth came out because he is truth. And the desert demonstrated that. It's truth that enables us to stand. It's truth that enables us to be discerning people. It's truth that enables us to pass the test. And so when we are tested, it should be truth that's found in our hearts. Not fear, not doubt, not confusion. If not, we know that something is missing right here. And we thank God for revealing to us what is missing so that we can seek to fill our hearts with the truth of God. Because we only know a lie to be what it is, a lie, 
when we know what the truth is. I found this on a website called Fraud Fighter. Three simple steps to teach employees how to detect counterfeit money. Step number one, order or download the Department of Treasury's multi-note booklet and poster. You know the government's going to get a little coin for themselves. All right, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) To learn how to detect counterfeit money, memorize the security features on the $5, $10, $20, and $100 bill. Keep them in a conspicuous place in the back room to reinforce the training. So step one, is to keep looking at the real thing over and over. Put the real thing in a conspicuous place so your employees are always seeing what's real and what's true. Step number two. Have every employee view each of the denominations in front of you and ask them to identify at least three security features on each bill. This simple exercise will give you the opportunity to point out other security features they may not be aware of and to reinforce their knowledge of the features they do recognize. And so step number two is test your employees. Make them look at the real money in front of you, see what they do know about it, and then point out to them what they may never have seen before. Step number three, instruct your people that handling money is about paying attention. Always be alert. Know that you know what is true. Now that you know what is true, you you can more easily spot what is counterfeit. What's the lie? So that's what God is doing in this passage. He's testing. He's proving the ones he loves so that we may see the lie. John Calvin writes this. It really describes us. Wherefore, we must not be impatient, nor murmur against God. If he chooses that the firmness of our faith, which is more precious than silver or gold, should be tried in the fiery furnace, but it behooves us humbly to acquiesce in his justice and wisdom. If any should still object that, since the weakness of mankind is only too notorious, God deals with them somewhat unkindly when he subjects them to these dangerous temptations. An answer might be readily given. I acknowledge, indeed, that since our carnal sense is tender, this may seem hard and inconsistent with the fatherly kindness of God, for surely, when a miracle presents itself before our eyes, it is difficult not to submit to it. But whosoever loves God with a pure heart is armed with the invincible power of the divine spirit that he should not be ensnared by falsehoods. God thus rewards true and not fictitious piety, so that whosoever are of a true heart should be protected by his faithful guardianship and never feel the deadly wound. Calvin's reminding us that there should be no fear in the test. It should not cause us to doubt ourselves. It should give us confidence in the unshakable God who has revealed himself to us. That's what God has said. In Isaiah 45, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God does not want us to be tricked 
And that's why he gives us all we need to stand against what is false. Look what he gave Israel. The miracle of the ten plagues. They knew it. The miracle of the Red Sea, the miracle of the manna, the miracle of the pillar of fire and the cloud, the miracle of water from the rock. He gave them the law written by his own finger on two tablets of stone for them to read. This is what they knew of God. This is what they had experienced from him. Why should one sign then turn them away from the God that they knew? How ridiculous to believe that one would stand among them and say, In my power as a prophet, I command you to turn away from the God for whom I claim to be a prophet. No, God does not contradict himself. And neither can anyone speaking for him contradict God's truth. So if we're here thinking, oh, poor people, poor Israel, they had that sign. Of course they believed. There was a miracle in front of their eyes. No. If we're thinking that, we're looking at them in the wrong way. All we should think about them is this. Poor ignorant people. For not knowing the truth and not knowing the God who is so clearly clearly revealed himself to them for not standing in that truth. God has given us everything we need to stand against falsehood. God is not ambiguous. So listen to his goal for his people. This is God's goal for you and for me. Paul writes it in Ephesians 4, that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves And blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. That's his goal for us, to be grown-up adults. Not confused, not bouncing here and there and all over the place. If a sign, even a miraculous sign turns us away from God, it's only because we're eager to turn in the first place, because we want something new, because we want something different, because we want something that we think is better. God's people always have the privilege of pursuing truth. You and I have the privilege of pursuing the truth of God. As the psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my what? Where? Heart. Thy word Have I hated my heart? Matthew Henry says it's needful for us to be well acquainted with the truths and precepts of the Bible. For we may expect to be proved by temptations of evil under the appearance of good or error in the guise of truth. Nor can anything rightly oppose such temptations but the plain express testimony of God's word to the contrary. You and I are not helpless victims or slaves to our emotions or to what we see. If we did not have the ability to stand up against the test, God wouldn't give us the test in the first place. Paul writes to the Galatians, I am astonished, astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone 
is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Look, Jesus is real. The gospel is true. Sins are forgiven. Life is found in Christ and Christ alone. That's the truth. Anyone who produces any sign or any message or anything otherwise is to be accursed. So if you are a victim that falls prey to temptation, it's only because you've made yourself a victim. Only because you don't know the truth. Only because you have not delved deeply into the gospel to try to grasp the depth of it and the person of Christ, to know who he is and to know what he has done for you. It's only because you have not hidden God's word in your heart. And only you know the reason for that. Why you haven't bothered. Why you haven't invested in the truth. We all ought to thank God for the test that reveals how empty we are of the truth of God if we are, in fact, empty of the truth of God. To thank him for a a test that reveals to us how much we need to fill up our, our hearts and our minds with his truth. The test is because God loves us. He wants to prove us, not to himself, but to ourselves. Where is the heart love? Where is the soul love of the Lord in your heart? If it's not there, you need to know that. And here's why. Here's why you need to know what's in your heart, what's in your mind right now. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 24. He's talking about the end times, the last days. Jesus says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. Sounds like a scary day, doesn't it? But look, the only reason for fear in that day is if you're not full. Full of the truth so that you can recognize the lie. You are in control of that. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.1, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Sounds like another scary day, but the only reason for you and for me to fear is if we're not full, full of the truth so that we can recognize the lie, and you and I, we are in control of that. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Sounds like a scary time, doesn't it? But the only reason for you and for me to fear is if we are not full. Full of the truth so that we can recognize the lie. And we are in control of that. 2 Peter 2.1 But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, 
bringing swift destruction on themselves. Sounds like a scary day, doesn't it? But the only reason for you and for me to fear is if we're not full, full of the truth so that we can recognize the lie, and you and I are in control of that. God loves us so much that he tests us to prove us, not to himself, but, but to ourselves, so that you and I are prepared. Do you know the gospel? Do you have Christ? Is he here in your heart? If not, God in his mercy has shown you the biggest deficit in your life. In his mercy, he has revealed to you your deepest need, what is missing the most, so that you may be able to turn in faith to Christ, so that you may be able to stand in this day. If the test reveals you and I don't know truth, as we should know truth, what a blessing. Here's truth. Pick it up. Hold it in your hand right now. Hold it in your hand. You're holding truth. This is truth. It is the word of God. Jesus is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. What can you do? You can commit right now. You can decide right now that you will know both. The truth of the word of God and the truth who is Jesus Christ himself. Know them both better and better every day. Let's pray. Father, we do believe that because you love us, you test us and you prove us. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us once again for ever thinking wrong thoughts about you. How easy it is to read a passage like this and not think deeply about it and read it as though you are one who is trying to trap or trick or ensnare your people, to trip them up. When in fact, Lord, it's your great mercy that you test and that you prove us. You force us, Lord, to look at our hearts, to look deep inside, to look in our minds. What's there? How much truth is there? How much do we care whether truth is there? Where's our love? Where's our relationship with you? Lord, we are so complacent. And easy days, which many of us have day after day, days of monotony, days of boredom, they may not reveal our lack. They may not show us our need. But Lord, when a test comes, man, then you prove what's in us. What comes out? Does fear come pouring out? Or does faith come pouring out? During the test, Lord, what's there? Is truth there? Or is confusion there? Are we tossed around about here and there by what one says, by what the culture says, by this message, by that message? Or, Lord, do we stand firm in your truth? The test reveals that. So we thank you, Lord, for the tests. We thank you that through them you reveal to us our deepest needs. And so now, Lord, in the next few moments, we just want to come quietly and silently before you as we prepare to come to your table. Even now, Lord, your, your word, the truth of it, the feeble preaching of it, even that, Lord, can be a test for us right now to examine our own hearts. So we ask you now, Spirit of God, these next few moments of quiet meditation to search our hearts. Show us what's there. Show us where we're deficit. Lord, give us the hope and the belief by faith to know that you will fill us up.